Welcome to Immigration Nerds. This podcast is for everyone seeking the details, context, and facts behind the banner headlines on immigration. It's the podcast that gives you the latest on immigration policy and politics and the real world impacts on the people and businesses that make our world turn. If you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Brought to you by the nerds at Erickson Immigration Group, guiding clients and their employees through the complex immigration system for over 20 years. Hello, immigration nerds. I'm Lauren Clark, senior attorney at Erickson Immigration Group. I am a fellow nerd, an immigrant, and host of this amazing podcast. In every episode, we're joined by the smartest nerds in the know as we cover trends in business, culture, technology, and politics at the intersection of global immigration. Today, we are going in search of the facts on the state of America's legal immigration system, a topic that dominates the news and recently was the subject of a hearing before the Committee on Oversight and Accountability in the United States House of Representatives. Coming up in just a few minutes, we're joined by Cato Institute Associate Director of Immigration Studies, David Beer, on his testimony at the hearing and why he believes the parole sponsorship program has great promise. But first, we bring you the latest immigration news we should all be aware of. And for that, we welcome back our news nerd-in-chief, Ericsson Immigration Group partner, Rob Taylor. What tops the news feed today, Rob? So we have a few updates for this week. Uh, first is just a reminder to everyone, H-1B cap registration is just around the corner. So registration will be open from March the 6th through March the 22nd. I know we've covered H-1B cap uh, you know, several times recently and gone over the fact that there will be some updates. So folks just need to be aware as they head into this, they need to understand what the updates and changes are and just be prepared to ensure that they can uh, have a smooth cap filing for their employees. Definitely. And I think especially for legal providers realizing that it's new from March 6 to noon Eastern Standard Time on March 22nd that that registration needs to be completed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the deadlines are important and hopefully with the new organizational accounts that USCIS has set up, that should hopefully allow for a little bit smoother process of enabling multiple administrators on the corporate side to submit the registrations as well as multiple legal representatives to be available to assist with that process. We'll see how it goes. Uh, As always, CAP is a fun and exciting, stressful time. So more to come on this, I'm sure, in, in the coming weeks. Another quick reminder, just on the employment side, premium processing fees are now into effect. So it will be important that when requests for premium processing are submitted, that the correct fee is included. If not, USCIS will deny that request and send it back. And folks could lose valuable time on, on cases that they may otherwise need processed quickly. Rob, I also believe that we are on watch for a possible government shutdown. What's the update there? Yeah. So uh, as we've been discussing for a long time, uh, this has been kind of kicked down the road over and over. The I think the current timeline is March the 1st for a partial shutdown and then March the 8th for a complete shutdown. There is still a lot of conversation and jockeying going on in DC. Uh, it's really unclear as to whether or not they'll be able to agree to a budget or some continuing resolution. You know, as we've always discussed in the past, when it comes to immigration, the agencies that are primarily affected are the Department of State, Department of Labor, and then USCIS are kind of like the main agencies we have to think about. Um, Department of State and the Department of Labor, if there's a government shutdown, they usually will close um, or come to some sort of limited operations, and that will affect immigration timelines and processing. 
USCIS, because it's self-funded, generally won't shut down and we won't really experience too many delays there. Uh, but there can be effects if you can't get certain things from the Department of Labor that you might need and so forth. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Uh, we'll obviously keep folks updated. Um, as always, people can sign up for our news updates on our website at eiglaw.com. We also are always posting news updates on LinkedIn. We'll have more to come soon. Again, some key dates to be aware of and to keep track of. Thanks, Lauren. It's good to be here. Thanks, Rob. And now for a conversation with David Beer, Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute, a nonpartisan public policy research organization in Washington, D.C. David, welcome back to the Immigration Nerds podcast. Thanks for having me. As immigration nerds, we took notice in January when the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability held a hearing entitled The Biden Administration's Regulatory and Policymaking Efforts to Undermine U.S. Immigration Law. You were called to testify at the hearing along with a former director of ICE and a former deputy director for policy at USCIS. Your testimony refuted the central question of the hearing. How do you see the state of legal immigration since January of 2021? I appreciate being on and I liked your introduction. You know, I I think that we've seen a slow, steady improvement in the legal immigration system since this administration took over. We were at really the lowest point we've seen almost in a century in terms of the number of immigrant visas being issued, the number of refugees being admitted legally from abroad, and a lot of legal immigrants and people who are operating within the immigration system are are incredibly frustrated with this administration. I think they have a lot of legitimate complaints, but I mean, they're starting from basically zero. I mean, we had an immigrant visa ban in effect, a non-immigrant visa ban in effect. You had all of these different entry bans uh, around the world in effect uh, in 2021. And some of these were extended or not immediately revoked by the new administration, which I obviously was extremely frustrated with them about. But eventually they did get rid of all of these different things and get visa processing back to where it was before the Trump administration, uh, all the way back uh, in 2016 for the first time. And so I, I think they've had an incredibly difficult task. It's taken a lot of creative thinking on their part, and in some ways, uh, political courage to rebuild a system in an environment where immigration has become such a toxic topic. And they haven't done, I would say, the best job that could be done. But that's not really the measure that any reasonable person could measure the job they've done compared to what would have been done if they had not won that election. Now, the hearing does address, you know, a number of actions by the administration. And David, when you joined us on the podcast a year ago, we spoke about the end of Title 42 authority. That topic came up during the congressional hearing. What facts can you share with our listeners about your research on that topic, particularly the impact post the end of Title 42? A couple of different things. So Title 42, Health Policy Authority, allowed the Border Patrol to expel people primarily to Mexico. And if you look at it, it, you know, this is supposed to be a a deterrent, uh, prevent people from wanting to cross illegally. 
80% of all the expulsions were of single adults from the Northern Triangle countries of Central America and Mexico. So when you think about it, that's what this Title 42 policy really was about, expelling single adults from these countries. They were expelled about 95% of the time. They accounted for 80% of all the expulsions that happened. And what effect did that have? Did that decrease the number who were crossing? Absolutely not. It increased fourfold during the time that it uh, was in effect compared to 2019 pre-pandemic numbers. Fourfold increase, huge numbers crossing. And why were they crossing even though they were being expelled? Because huge numbers were not being caught and they were evading detection and Border Patrol was engaged in unprecedented car chases and other chases of of people trying to get into the United States. Because if you can't request asylum, Title 42 said you couldn't request asylum, so there's no reason to turn yourself into Border Patrol. You put yourself in the hands of smugglers. Any of those smugglers don't stop for Border Patrol vehicles. They just keep on going. They don't want to be caught and go to jail. So it's a perilous uh, a process that we created. It made things less safe for migrants, less safe for the Border Patrol, did not improve security, uh, saw a massive increase in what they call gotaways or evasions of Border Patrol. And since we got rid of Title 42, evasions have gone down 80% since then, massive decline through January. This is a huge success story, increased security along the border, reduced the amount of chaos for Border Patrol in terms of chases and, and everything else. And so I think Title 42 was ineffective and counterproductive. And so in terms of what we've seen since then, we saw initially a decline in the total number of arrests in June and July since return to a very high level last December. Uh, we talked about some of the reasons for the, the numbers there. And then this past month in January, we saw a huge decline, 50 percent drop in the number of people crossing the largest single one month to month decline in the entire history of the Border Patrol. And so this is a a really dramatic period in which we've seen lower migration. And now in February, preliminary reports say that it's starting to increase again. So we go through these cycles, you know, policies change, migrants change their tactics, smugglers change their tactics, people wait and see to see how these new policies will play out. Then you see these spikes again. And that's one of the reasons why we should have a more consistent policy when it comes to immigration, particularly for letting people in legally. So it prevents these spikes and crises from building because if people know what the policy is, they know how to follow it. They're less prone to, I need to rush to the border right now because I don't get in tomorrow. The whole border is going to close, which was sort of the dynamic that was playing out in December as uh, members of Congress uh, debated something that they were branding as the close the border bill. And speaking of legal means of immigration or migration to the United States, one of the key initiatives or programs that was discussed was parole. And you shared findings regarding the successful lawful process of Ukrainians coming to the United States starting in 2022. What can we all learn about humanitarian parole and its impact on legal immigration broadly? The Ukrainians were coming after the invasion, coming tens of thousands to the southwest border. And the administration had a choice. It could enforce Title 42, ban them from crossing legally, 
expel them to Mexico. And it just shows we're not going to do that. We're not going to be seen doing that. At the same time, Poland is taking over a million Ukrainians. We're not going to turn around and expel a few tens of thousands. And so they let them in legally through parole at ports of entry. Um, So they didn't face the same things that uh, all the other uh, nationalities were facing in terms of crossing the border illegally. And then in in response to this phenomenon, we wanted to get them away from the border. We created parole sponsorship program, which allows U.S. citizens and other legal U.S. residents to sponsor Ukrainians for what's called humanitarian parole, which is a temporary permission to travel to the United States and live temporarily for up to two years, potentially renewable. We'll we'll see about that. But once this program was rolled out, we've seen over 99% decline in the number of Ukrainians coming to the Southwest border as a result of this ability to be sponsored. And so many of people are waiting to get sponsors. Once they get sponsors, they're willing to line up air travel directly to the United States. And then they have work authorization when they get here. So they're not burdens on taxpayers in the cities where they're going. And so it's been a highly successful program. The administration expanded it to Venezuelans in October, but imposed a cap on the number of Venezuelans who could come under that program. And then in January of last year, they expanded it to Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans. So we now have five nationalities who are eligible for this parole sponsorship initiative. And it's reduced the number of illegal encounters by these groups. Dramatically, in the case of Cubans and Nicaraguans and Haitians, less so for Venezuelans, but certainly better than what it would be if the program didn't exist at all. So it's been a great benefit. It's improved security at the border. It's improved the orderliness of the migration that's happening by enabling people to line up travel and housing and sponsors and everything in advance of them getting here. And it's really a blueprint for how to address the border going forward. Parole is a temporary authority. It's two years, like I mentioned. That's not going to be good enough. We need a a long-term path for people to stay for a longer period. I mean, Katie isn't going to improve suddenly in the next two years and doesn't look like the Russians are pulling out of Ukraine. So I certainly think we need to think about a congressional policy that enables people to stay more long-term. And if not administrative policy, we used to have something called indefinite parole under the Reagan administration. And whatever happened to that, we just decided we're going to time limit everything arbitrarily. I don't think that makes sense in this case. No one's expecting these people are going to just pack their bags at the end of the two years. So we need to think about some of the administrative fixes that this process needs. Unfortunately, the program for Cubans Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans has been less effective than it could be because it has a cap of 30000 a month. And that 30000 cap is far too low for the amount of demand that we're seeing from these countries. Over a million and a half people are waiting for status travel authorization through this program. And that's a, essentially a five-year backlog. And I don't think there's anybody out there who's terribly confident that this is going to exist for the next five years. I mean, it might not even exist for the next five months. And so, you know, court rules against uh, the legality of the program. Um, And then, of course, you know, you have an election coming up where it could be canceled for that reason, too. So you got to have policy that's more permanent than can be created through executive action to really give people confidence 
that uh, they're going to be able to use these programs that are being created. The New York Times reported on this lady who's been waiting over a year to be able to go through the parole sponsorship. She had some New York Times editor who's sponsoring her along with all these other people. And, you know, the all-star team, they called them of sponsors, couldn't get in because the cap is arbitrarily set. It's not based on who's sponsoring you or anything like that. So she's been waiting for a year. She's trying to tell people, no, there's this great program. You should be waiting for it. Uh, don't go. And, you know, they're ignoring her and getting to the border and being released in two weeks. And meanwhile, she's waiting for over a year. Unfortunately, the dynamics, you know, you got to make the legal immigration path easier than the illegal immigration path. And that's probably going to take some enforcement on the illegal immigration side. But you got to do more on the legal immigration side than has already been done to demonstrate to people that this is the way to go. If you want to come to America, this is the path, not just paying someone to try to get you to the border. And that was definitely a discussion that came up within the committee and something that we see on a day-to-day basis at EIG, not necessarily in relation to parole, but in relation to the lawful pathways to permanent residency, particular reference to the visa bulletin, where people have followed the legal pathways, have followed everything that's outlined for them, but the chances of them obtaining that either permanent residency or access to the United States are decades and sometimes likely not even to happen within their lifetime. How do we address the legal pathways that we currently have as being inefficient when we're still pushing to try and move from illegal immigration to legal migration? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the legal immigration system is a mess and it hasn't been addressed going on 34 years now since the Immigration Act of 1990 was passed, which established the categories and the caps on legal immigration. And that law is entirely inappropriate for the 21st century. It was inappropriate in the 20th century. I mean, they knew the caps weren't going to be big enough, particularly for family-sponsored immigration. And they just went ahead and said, well, this is what we can agree to. So, you know, we're going to pass it uh, anyway. And so we went from two and a half million people waiting for family sponsored green card to now almost nine million people waiting for a green card. And now maybe the most appropriate time more than ever in light of the growth of the U.S. economy and job opportunities, which are outpacing labor supply. How has your research and the Cato's research factor in labor supply with the U.S. economy growth into the legal immigration equation? At this particular moment in time under the Biden administration, where we have had on average about 10 million open jobs per month, I mean, this would have been the moment where you say, okay, let's do something about these backlogs and get people in these jobs so the U.S. economy is producing at a highest level it can be producing. And look, when people are working, they have a negative effect on inflation. It reduces inflation when people are producing more goods and services in the economy. And so we want to have people come in and work and contribute. Unfortunately, we're so far from this conversation. I mean, people just want to reduce the total numbers. And that's sort of this white whale that they're pursuing where you really need to be focused on the system, make the system work well so that the immigration that we get is beneficial and not chaotic and not disorderly and not illegal. And, you know, no one's really even having that. Kind of, I mean, yeah, the, the bipartisan Senate deal like gives 50,000 additional green cards a year for the next five years. 
like that's a long-term solution to the problem. I don't want to totally dismiss it because it's certainly a great thing for the 250,000 people who are going to get those green cards and it's not nothing. But I mean, the scale of the moment when you're talking about, well, that's how many people are showing up every five days at the southwest border and you're going to throw 50,000 green cards uh, to the backlog. I mean, it's just not a serious approach. No one is having a serious conversation about what legal immigration should be in the United States. All you hear is complaints about illegal immigration. Uh, you know, we're paying for transportation, we're paying for their housing, we're paying for this or that, or there are criminals or whatever. And you never get, well, okay, so design the system. Tell us what the system should be. And no one wants to have that conversation. Uh, a lot of these problems that we're having is created because we have so much illegal immigration because of the restrictions on legal immigration. We want people to be channeled into a system where they can be the most successful versions of themselves, which is going to make the United States the most successful version of itself. One of the, I feel like, powerful statements that you made in your testimony that talks about kind of the value of an individual was that we need to start with the premise that people are not the problem. People are the ultimate resource. Can you elaborate what you mean by this in the immigration context? Yeah, I, I've said that each time that I've testified, I've, I've included this line about people being the ultimate resource. It, it, it comes from the economist Julian Simon, who uh, said, we're not running out of resources because people are inventive. They can come up with solutions to these problems, and that makes them the ultimate resource. And so this was written at a time when people were predicting population growth is going to make everyone in the world starve. And the exact opposite happened. We've had more food production now than we've ever had in the entire history of the world. And people are being pulled out of poverty every single day around the world. And so I, I love this line. I didn't initially even have that in my prepared remarks. And I just I just ad libbed it on, on the moment because I just feel like it's such an important point for people to recognize. If you start with that premise, if you start with the premise that people are a benefit, that they are a good thing, that they should be celebrated, that we, you know, all of our rules of governance should be around making those people productive and protecting their lives and their liberties. If you start with that premise, then you're going to end up with a radically different immigration system than the one that we have ended up with. No one even really designed the system. It's just kind of been cobbled together over the course of many decades with very little thought and arbitrary numbers getting picked out every single time we go through this. And so I honestly believe that every single conversation that I have, I try to frame around this perspective that, look, you have to agree that people are good and that they are going to produce things of value for the country. Because if you start with the opposite view, then there's no way for me to persuade you about immigration. You're going to have a lot of problems because if the goal is to just to reduce the population of the United States, there's lots of ways to do that. And that would not, I think, be in the interest of the country. I think more Americans is a good thing 
both economically and socially and for the, the power and influence of this great country has around the world. If we had a country that had banned immigration at the founding, estimates are we'd only have about a third of the population we have now. Obviously, a third of the economy that we have now, third of the market, um, we'd be an older country and a less prosperous country and have a lot less influence around the world uh, than we do today. Well, David Beer, Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute, thank you so much for being our guest on the Immigration Nerds podcast. Of course. Thank you. And nerds, you can find links to the hearing and all the witness testimony in our show notes. And you can always find more information at our Ericsson Immigration Group website, eiglaw.com. And remember, if you believe immigration makes us all better, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe and meet us right back here for another new episode of Immigration Nerds.